Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontifrac, who is in the house tonight. Creek Speaks. Creek Speaks. Adam Creek, who is one of North America's top executive business coaches who specializes in leadership development, strategic planning, and values-driven achievement. We're going to get into that in specifics there, Adam. He's a two-time Olympian. Uh, Adam holds 60 international medals, including Olympic gold and multiple Hall of Fame inductions. In 2013, get this, Adam made the first ever attempt to row unsupported across the Atlantic Ocean from Africa to America, which became the subject of the NBC Dateline documentary, Capsized. Spoiler alert, I guess, Adam. Adam also walks the talk. He's an entrepreneur. He runs two small corporations, Creek Speak Business Solutions and um, Ergo Eco Solutions, a low-carbon initiative that connects small businesses with small governments. Adam is a wonderful husband, a father of three, an active volunteer in his community, where I also coincidentally reside, and nationally, but through his work, past and present with various health youth empowerment, and human rights not-for-profit organizations. His best-selling book, here is, folks, The Responsibility Ethic, teaches us the how of self-leadership, driving personal and professional results in individuals and organizations. Creek in the house. So great to see you, hear from you, my friend. Um, we want to get into the book because I love it. Those 12 ethics, those responsibilities and your three action ethics, if you will, uh, loads of information in there. But um, let me ask you a question that's sort of uh, related to the book, but kind of related to the work that you're doing right now, Adam. And that is, what's your take on where is where is the organization right now as you work with different clients, et cetera, not naming anyone, but you know, here we are hopefully entering into a post-pandemic era, whatever that means. But what's your just gist? Like, what's the gist and what's going out there in organization land from your lens? Well, from, from my lens, I go around speaking at conferences and then I work with a number of leaders, you know, one-on-one. -on -one, and then I'm running some strategic planning uh, workshops. So what, what I'm seeing when I'm out there is that people are hungry. They're hungry to uh, set goals and achieve them and, uh, and, and achieve them in alignment with their values and the purpose of the organization. Mm -hmm. People want to do things together, believe in one another, and believe in the organization. Uh, I think that there is a strong sense of idealism from you know the management and the leadership that I work with. They do care about uh, their employees. They want to do the right thing, uh, and they have drive. So, uh, you know, I see a lot of high-performing individuals who want to get things done, uh, and you know, I also see that you know people are interested in having. The support, you know, they're interested in having the support they need to grow and thrive within their organizations. You know, sometimes when you're working within an organization, and you know, my history is as a rower, an Olympic rower, and I like the metaphor of Olympic rowing to organizational leadership, because in an Olympic rowing boat, you have eight people sitting one behind another, and everybody's moving in unison, but you're kind of working alone. You're, you're just one person holding on to your oar and you're working alone and in unison. And there's still a lot of, you know, remote, hybrid, uh, there's new ways that people are working. And so that feeling of being alone, but with a team is actually even has increased a little bit more. Uh, so I, 
what I what I am seeing is that this alone together feeling is there. People are driven, but they also are craving a little bit more support in that alone together team environment. Oh, interesting. Well, I mean, some of your uh, your ethics, if you will, the responsibility ethics, right? Speak speak to that, indeed. So. One of the things I wanted to get into um, was uh, a number of these ethics. Um, the the first was actually jumping ahead a little bit, not chronologically in your book, and that's the take responsibility for your safety ethic. And the reason why I wanted to go there first, Adam, um, you kind of share a story. Well, there's many stories you share that are personal, but you also share many other stories. But in this particular story, you know, you're alluding to being um, basically on a rig and much of your background, you know, from where you've learned a lot of these great leadership skills is like on the front lines of your work, whether it's, again, as an athlete, um, as a work, as a, as a knowledge worker, as a, um, as a, uh, you know, a, an athlete in the work world, if you want to call a blue collar job, mm -hmm. a blue collar job, you've done it all. So in this case, safety, let's start there and tell us a little bit about that story when you're on the rig and why that is one of the ethics that you believe leaders really need to be thinking about. Well, the safety, the safety message is important for all organizations. And I think one of the mistake that organizational leaders make is to make uh, safety a core value. Uh, because safety is more important than a value. Safety is a non-negotiable. It should be uh, undeniably there within the organization. No worker deserves to go to work and have a life-altering injury or have their life ended. And that responsibility, that responsibility lies squarely within the management. So if anyone gets hurt, the management should feel that pain. And they, they do. And when I, when I work with organizations, it's, it can be pretty uh, dramatic, actually, the feeling that, uh, that, that you have. And so Yes, I worked as a roughneck on an oil rig when I was 18, 19 years old. I started, I moved through a number of the positions. You can be a lease sand, a roughneck, a motor man, a derrick man, driller, top of the, the tool piles, the tool push. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so there I was, I was I was a roughneck. I had just gone onto the rig floor and you're using these you know, 800 pound steel tongs and they're basically like a big wrenches you use to tighten pipes or loosen pipes. What happens is you have a, a drill that spill that spins on the end of a bunch of pipes through the center of the pipe goes mud. It squishes out of the end of the drill as it as it crushes up rock and it takes that rock that is crushed up and it, it puts it up through the borehole and brings it up to the surface. So you're constantly having to tighten these pipes and loosen them, uh, take them off and put another pipe in. And that's called, uh, you know, making a connection. And so we're, we're doing this process where we're making a connection. You're taking these big tongs and you slam them in, you lean them back. And then the tool push is on as, uh, or not the tool push, the driller was on uh, the, the controls and he was making sure that everything uh, was, you know, we had just loosened it off. And so we loosened it off, pulled up the, uh, the Kelly, which was the super big, it's a super big pipe with a chuck on it that links into the rig floor to turn the drill. And so we take the Kelly, which is you know a couple tons, and we rig it back into something called uh, the uh, the rat hole, which is a big <laughs> hole that we put there. The rat hole. We have a rat hole in our mouse hole. The big Kelly goes in the rat hole, and the, the small pipe goes in the mouse hole. So we rig it. We put it back there. 
and we get another pipe in, we put it on, we put it down, uh, you know, set the slips so on the drill string, and then we go to get the that giant Kelly again out of the out of the rat hole. Yeah. And the motorman's job is to grab onto this uh, grab onto this Kelly that's coming out with a, a thick a thick braided hemp rope. But the driller was a little bit hazy. You know, he had had a couple too many brown pops the night before. And again, like you said, you know, frontline workers are athletes. They need to take care of their mind. They need to yeah. take care of their body. They need, need to take care of their mental space. And if you're not taking care of that in a very physical environment, it can be dangerous not only to yourself, but to everybody around you in, in this type of environment. And so the, the driller you know, had fallen prey to the brown pops. And that day was, was fuzzy, was foggy, wasn't, wasn't sharp. And he rammed the controls a little bit too quickly. And the motorman wasn't able to put the rope around the Kelly quickly enough. And so picture this, you're standing there, you're a 19 year old kid, you've, you know, and this two ton piece of steel comes towards you. And it came and boom, it brushed right by my face. I, I can still feel it now and thinking about it. It clanged right against the, the derrick and you just feel the whole entire metal structure vibrate. And the first thing that the, the driller says is he looks at me and is like, what the fuck are you doing? Right, just <laughs> real rage and anger, just, just from the core. Like, what yeah. the fuck were you doing? Yeah. And I remember just looking at him and my heart hat had knocked off because it was, it was that close of a call. And the motorman looks over at me and he's just like, holy crap. I almost, you know, I almost saw this guy squished and we get back and, you know, what do you do when the boss is yelling at you and screaming at you and you're just a young guy, you, like, you get back to work because that's what you do. You don't know any different. And so we get back, we reorganize things. We put the Kelly in, we make the connection, you know, put the tongs away and afterwards, that my motorman, who is a few years older than me, is in you know in his early thirties at the time, which is a huge difference when you're a nineteen year old. Yeah, takes me aside, yeah. it's like, hey, look, Creek, like I've got your back. You watch out for this guy. He is like he's not safe. Uh, you, we've got to take extra steps now when we're on the floor with this guy. Otherwise, uh, you know, we like we could have disaster. So we'd really have to look out for one another. And having that experience of that older worker taking me aside and advocating for me in the context of the, the senior manager who was on the, the, the ground was really important. And then later that week after we communicated what had been happening, because this, this was an extreme event. There was a lot of other smaller events. You know, again, bad management, bad leadership, bad safety culture. Uh, this guy was eventually thankfully you know was um you know was fired from the job and moved on but you know as i've moved into the world of of consulting and understand you know how organizations work is that a very high safety culture is indicative of a good business and good operational procedures it shows that people know how to take care of the details in the same way that when you're preparing for an Olympic race, for example, you make sure that every small detail is taken care of so that you can execute uh, at the highest level. The same sort of thing needs to happen within a business. Mm -hmm. If you're not taking care of all of the pieces of safety and safety is, is the simple things done well. 
you know, it's communication, yeah. it's doing your meetings properly, it's showing up with the right energy. And like you say in your book, it's it's leading, it's caring, it's winning. You know, the you know, the core of safety is is caring, is truly caring about the people that um you know that you're leading and that you have responsibility for within your team and following these systems properly. And what you find is that companies that follow their safety procedures and integrate them into their business procedures, because it's not just about having a safe culture, it's it's safety, safely executing. It's about safely making a profit. And when you can link those things together, all of a sudden you're more profitable. You execute more quickly. You have less downtime. You have uh, lost, you know, less lost time. And uh, and like I said, a lot of these processes that you need to to integrate to build a strong safety culture uh, make your culture like make the broader culture of the organization stronger. Well, I, I love it, and for many reasons. First of all, like not a lot of people will put actual safety down as. Um, sort of a, a responsibility ethic, you know, in their leadership book, let alone as part of their leadership culture. And I, I agree with you. I think it, it's not a value. It's, it's core it should be at the principal root of the DNA of what the operation stands for. So I just wanted to call that out and, and laud you on you calling it out and making it one of your 12. Um, you also, uh, one of the other ethics, if you will, that I wanted to really talk to you about, you do so much work with goal setting. And as you kind of think about um, the ethic that is, um, you know, ultimately, as you say, take responsibility for your goals, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, life as the rower, the metaphor through rowing, and the goals, because I would imagine not being a rower, although I have rowed, that there, um, there's individual goals, then there's boat goals, and then there perhaps is even, you know, rowing team goals, like the greater rowing good. So tell us a bit about how rowing um, taught you about goals and being responsible for your own goal setting. Well, it's, you know, when we talk about individual goals uh, within the context of a boat, within a team, you know, within a movement, you know, the Olympic movement, it's, mm -hmm. it's like an onion. You have to understand the different layers of the onion. And uh, the better you can tie your individual goals into the goals of the larger social constructs that you're a part of, the more likely you are to achieve within that. Mm. Uh, and I, I didn't understand the language or the methodology when I was younger. And I was able to figure it out through a lot of great mentorship and guidance from older athletes, from coaches, from psychologists, uh, from just generous people who are willing to share their knowledge and their time. But now I recognize it as, as making sure that you are fulfilling your values, which is the how of achieving goals in your achievement. And not only do you have to serve your own personal values, you have to serve the values of the team, you have to serve the values of the organization, you have to serve the values of the industry, or for myself, the individual, the boat, uh, the, the, the broader team, and the movement, uh, you know, the Olympic movement. Yeah. And so by, by setting the right goals for yourself, you can, you know, you can achieve great things. And the, you know, and this idea of, 
of values. An individual has one set of values. A team will have a different set of values. The organization will have a different set of values and the industry will have a different set of values. And there will be some overlap. The, the challenge comes in not with the professed values that you see, because often most values that are projected are pro-social. You know, yeah. teamwork, yeah. communication, yeah. integrity, yeah. Uh, I, all, all of these things that people look at and they say, yeah, I can agree with that. Mm. Where, where values really gets tricky and where you, you need to have good conversations in a safe space is when what I call shadow values show up because we are all motivated by shadow values. And when we talk about shadow values, there are self-preservation values that exist. And I like the uh, the Schwartz theory of values uh, because Mr. Schwartz went and codified different values and he showed how different values were actually in conflict and pro-social values are naturally in conflict with self-preservation values. And so in, from a broader category of self-preservation values, you'll have stimulation. So people who just need new things or um, you know addictions and um you know, romantic uh, pursuits that kind of falls into the, the, the stimulation side of things. And then there's achievement, the need to achieve. Uh, then there's power, the need to feel powerful and in control. And then there's security, the need to feel safe. And all of these things are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but, you know, because they're, you know, we need to preserve who we are as an individual, uh, but they've, uh, they can also cause damage in the way that we achieve and or the way that we well i'll say the way that we achieve or the way that we look for power the way that we look for stimulation the way that we look for security and i called my company values driven achievement you know partially because achievement does have a very dark side to it and i've i've seen it as an olympic gold medalist i've seen it working with high performance business people who mm. are really driven to uh to make their mark and put their stamp and make their contribution and you know, and and noticing that balancing act between um, achieving and achieving at all costs, and you see it within the sporting world. And thank God I was never um, you know exposed to or, or had a system set up to encourage me to dope, uh, to violate the rules, uh, like you know some countries have. You know the Russians particularly. Yeah. And I look at those athletes, and I and if I were to have that honest conversation with myself. If I was there, a 23-year-old kid wanting to be best in the world, and I had a system and the doctor came up and said, take this, this will make you faster, I would take it. Wow. And and the like because it's part of it's part of the system. Yeah. Now, mind you, we didn't have the education we do now and or the exposure we do now, but that's you know, I find you know, we are you know, that drive, you know, these drives that we have to, you know, yeah, like I said, to achieve, to achieve safety, financial security, to achieve power, feeling like you've, uh, you're, you know, you're, you can control things that need to control. They, it can have a darker side and that can, uh, that can pollute your personal goals, that can pollute your team goals, that can pollute your organizational goals. And when we talk about building uh, values-driven cultures, and uh, you know, that's when I come into organizations, people 
in middle management work will roll their eyes or shake their heads because they'll say, oh, here we have a, you know, a leadership team who's saying, you know, we value cost controls and making sure that we're, we're being efficient. And then they hop into their $250,000 McLaren, drive to their private jet and zoom away. And you, you, you see that disconnect of, well, you've, you know, those values aren't, you know, you don't have the integrity of, of values. And yes, you're promoting these pro-social values, but your shadow values are, are expressing themselves in a way that is, uh, is, is not coherent. And so getting back to the individual, which is the subject of take responsibility for your goals, mm -hmm. you know, how do we, how do we set goals? It's understanding truly what do you value from a pro-social standpoint? Mm -hmm. What do you value from a self-preservation standpoint? Um, how do you identify the shadow values that have a way to, you know, to um, become toxic in your life? And, you know, in the book, I don't identify them as shadow values per se, but I call them toxic goals. Yeah. And we tend to have these toxic goals of, of status, yeah. of, um, of you know, status and fame or power, you know, that would be on you know, the power goal. We have, have, have drives of, of, of beauty or sex, which kind of goes into the stimulation uh, side of, of values. Uh, we have uh, goals of, you know, uh, yeah, of achievement. And uh, these toxic goals that we set for, if we set those goals with the wrong heart set and the wrong mindset, they tend to self-destruct and they, they tear us apart because if people want to help you up, like self-preserve up to a point, up to a point where you're, you're at the level. But then if you're a high achiever, you want to go above the level. Right. You, you don't want to just be an average person. You want to be above average and, you know, for whatever reason. And if you're still pursuing these toxic goals, other people will see that and they will want to pull you back down a peg because it's not helpful to them because you're achieving at the expense of, uh, of other people. So the, I think when we're talking about personal goals, it's, it's gaining a very clear picture of, of what you value how your goals overlap with your team, with your, with your organization, with your industry. And when you have a really good alignment and there's pro-social goals that are articulated and actually activated and lived, and you can see them being lived mm. and the shadow values, you know, the toxic goals aren't, you know, aren't jumping around and people aren't dominating each other and taking advantage of each other and they're not playing you know we call them political games where you speak pro-social out of one side of your mouth and you take the self-preservation uh out of the other side and um you know if you don't if you're if you're seeing enough of the 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 pro-social behavior in all the groups that you're involved in and you're actually seeing them activated then it's motivating and it's you want to be involved in that team you can understand and this you know the analogy and the metaphor of going to the olympics was a great you know it was it's a great metaphor because individually i wanted to win an olympic gold medal right it's like i want to win an olympic gold medal i want to have this experience I want to go on the world stage. I want to test myself. Uh, for me, I wanted to have 
almost a spiritual experience, you know, to go into that, the cave of darkness and see how hard I could push my body and see how connected I could feel to the universe and my teammates and, and just see if I could come out of the other side with, you know, the, the gold medal, which was a, I guess a, a cherry on the cake, you know, it's, it's a nice thing to have. Uh, but then the team, everybody wanted a gold medal too, but they also wanted it for different reasons. You know, some wanted it for a sense of, of power. Some wanted it for a sense of redemption. Some wanted it for a sense of satisfaction. Some wanted it uh, for, uh, you know, career advancement. Uh, some wanted it for very different reasons. And, but we were all able to unite around, having this one shared target and then from the team you know the team wants you to perform because it's it means that what we're doing together uh you know you've got the men's eight the women's eight you've got the lightweight men's four you've got the single you've got the pair all these different boat classes people are working to support each other you know although you'll have you'll have ego and competition that exists because you've you still are highly competitive individuals, but you're still, you know, buying into the bigger, hey, look, we're here to support one another. And then you've got the broader Canadian team who's showing up representing Canadian values on the world stage. You know, look at us, you know, we've got a great system of support of, you know, of you know, gender equality in sport and other uh, sorts of, uh, you know, ideals that we promote internationally. And then you've got the global Olympic movement, which is about friendship and excellence and togetherness and uh, working to, to achieve that. And, uh, you know, and making sure, and I felt there was, you know, a certain alignment between all of those different layers of the onion. And that's what motivated the individual goal uh, within the context of this big system. Mm. Okay, so one of the the other ethic I wanted to ask you about and align maybe to the point of the values piece you just spoke to with the alignment to the goals at the different levels, Adam, is um, your ethic, which if I'm paraphrasing correctly, is um, take care of the people in your boat. And so tell me a bit about actually, as we kind of think about that, aligning that with the goals, but can you give us a sense of how you think things are going today in the, in, with that ethics in the, in the, with that ethic, I'm sorry, in the work that you do. So again, I want to get your sense of, well, how are we doing? Like, are we taking care of the people in our boat? Adam? It's a complex subject because I think objectively you can look at the workplace and it's the best that it's ever been from an inclusion standpoint, mm -hmm. from a support standpoint. And you could say there is more opportunity for almost anyone and everybody to do what they want. Yet it seems that the workplace also feels more challenging than it has ever felt before. And it's, that is a, that is a question that I don't really know the answer to. Uh, you know, I can, you know, I can go back to the basics, which is, I think, what often we need to think about. You know, because the devil's in the details, and but the basics of uh, respecting everybody who is on your team, making sure that you have the right people in the right seats of the boat, uh, a great that everybody 
understands on the team, when you're taking care of people on your team, everybody understands what the goal is in the boat. Because this is a very simple question. What's the goal of an Olympic rowing aid? Seems to be to win, it? right? Well, is it? Ah, well, maybe you got me there. Don't know. Yeah, well, it's that's you know, that's the question. Cause there was that was certainly the goal of our team. And then I remember the following Olympics at the London Olympics. The, the the Canadian men showed up to the race and the Germans were there and the Germans, they rode longer, they rode stronger, they were taller, they were fitter, they were better looking, uh, their wives were better looking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they were, and the, the Canadians looked at them and the coach looked at them and said, our goal is to go for the silver. <laughs> and until the coach said that they went through the heats and the repechage going for the gold and they had all sorts of struggles uh, going through the regatta until it was solidified as the shared goal was to go for the silver they got the silver they loved it it was an amazing race they did an incredible job and everyone was proud uh, even at the um the athens olympics where i went to and we we finished fifth we were expecting to medal if not win cross the finish line in fifth place and we were devastated like we were crying you know we were we were we had really choked at the highest level but the boat that followed after us was the french and the french crossed the finish line and they cheered right they had the race of their life and so they they knew what their goal was as a team and they were very satisfied internally with their result so i think one of the ways we can take care of the people on our team and our boat is there's you know, the further you move up the organization as a leader, the more driven you are and the more oriented you are to win. Mm. And I will say, I've seen this over and over again. Uh, and usually that's what you're, you're looking for. But you assume that everybody else is on your team and in your boat looking for the same thing. And you need to make sure that, you know, that everybody on the boat has has an alignment and as to the highest goal, you know, as just as they have alignment to the values. And one of the things I talk about is this kind of, I call it a diversity sandwich, you know, because there's a lot of talk about diversity and making sure that we have diverse teams and we're being very inclusive, which is very important, but you need to be unified. If you're going to have a team, if you're going to have an organization, you need to have a unity of, of vision, of goal, of mission, that higher thing that you're going for, that's the top level of bread. Call it a nice marbled rye. Um, I'm sorry if you're gluten-free, <laughs> uh, but that's, <laughs> that's a little joke there. And then the bottom level is, is the values, the culture, the behaviors. And so by having a unity of vision and a unity of values, you can then allow for people who have a diversity of backgrounds, a diversity of skills, a diversity of personalities, a diversity of... Uh, <clears throat> you know, of origin. Mm -hmm. And then you can have a, a very well-functioning organization. Uh, and so I think we can take care of our team by getting very clear on what unifies us and where the diversity can, uh, can truly help us. And uh, I think that's one way to, you know, to nurture our teams and make sure that uh, our teams are cared for. 
my uh my last question before we ask you where we can find more out about you uh it's all it seemed like a bit almost like a throwaway graphic but i want to dig into it because i have a question for you based on some work i've been doing on work life right now and that is at the end of the book you have a a, you call it the life chart and Mm -hmm. on the x-axis at the top are weeks in the year and on the y-axis is basically the age of adam creek and you've plotted yeah you've plotted you know when you were five years old and getting bullied when uh you met uh your wife uh becca when you had your children when you won gold, when you capsized, when you published your book. And it's it's really powerful. And so where I'm going with this is, uh, Adam, as, as the work in which you do now, and you're looking at the organizations and you're working with leaders of all stripes, is there a uh, work-life integration that we're missing? I.e., should the organization be doing something to help people you know, uh, with their lives. And that could be their personal values. That could be their sense of id, their identity, you know, their own sense of meaning, you know, in quote life, but also obviously bringing back to the point, well, we work somewhere. So, you know, the integration of that work life is something that maybe we have to do a better job at. I'm just curious based on the life chart that you uh, expose in the book itself. Well, it's, Yes. <laughs> in short, I think the organization has a responsibility to uh, to make sure that their people are thriving. And again, as long as we want people who are going to perform in their jobs, we want people who have aligned values with the organization, people who buy into the mission and the, the vision of the organization. Yet we also know that strong individuals make up strong teams. And if you have people who are firmly grounded in their life, and if the different aspects of their life are taken care of and their self are taken care of, then they can contribute their whole self and their whole being to the team. Uh, And it's a, you know, it's work that I go through. And I, 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 you know, I showed this life chart to you because I was, I, I was first introduced to this exercise in, you know, a number of years ago. It was in the process of writing the book when I first learned about it, of breaking your life down into weeks. It's from the Wait But Why mm. um, um, blog uh, that, that's out there. And by going through the process, you're able to understand truly, you, know, you reflect upon the high points and the low points of your life. And it's similar to doing a lifeline if you've ever done that. I'm sure a lot of the people who watch your podcast are familiar with lifelines and maybe they're familiar with life charts. Uh, But by reflecting upon your life, a number of things happen. It's uh, one, you recognize the good point times were great, but they didn't last that long. The Mm -hmm. bad points were actually not that long. And you've, um, I've done this with a number of people where they've, they you know have a year of your life that was that felt absolutely horrible you went through a divorce or you had an illness of a child or things were really really challenging and they step back and they say wow that was really impactful but it was actually such a small portion of my life so mm-hmm. the low points the low points become get the right place the high points get the right place and you recognize the patterns that were in place for making your your good times uh so you can make more good times and have less bad times. And so then bringing back that overlap, if you have people who are geared towards making good times you know, in their life uh, and 
figuring out what they want in their life and how their current role will help them get there, they will be remarkably productive. And there's been lots of research out there that shows that. I've seen that just empirically through the work that I do, that when, when a manager sits down with an individual and they ask them, you know, what are your career goals? What are your life goals? Uh, and they understand that. And then they sit with the individual and say, now, this is what we need to do in our work. How can your work help you get there? And a lot of people, you know, especially, you know, smarter managers and leaders recognize that you're going to work with these people, but not forever. People will find opportunities and, and move on. But the more that you can help people get what they want within the role of, of your organization, one, you have a better match, a better cultural mm -hmm. fit. And two, you gain more loyalty, more commitment. And three, performance just goes up. Uh, and maybe even four, it's the right thing to do. It feels good. It feels good to help people live better lives. <laughs> Nothing wrong with a little oxytocin, right? Yeah, it yes. just feels oh, good. Exactly. Uh, you're a gem. Uh, I've you know gotten to know you over the last couple of years. And so I would think of you as, first of all, um, equal parts doer and thinker. Uh, someone whom I might even reckon is a pragmatic philosopher. Uh, you really know how to um, break things down into really um, sensible, logical, practical, but very helpful and thoughtful bits. And the, the 12 ethics and the three action ethics that, uh, that you come up with in the book, uh, I think, are just, just pragmatic, philosophical, but actionable in themselves. Like, so I wanted to say thanks for writing the book. Uh, thanks for doing what you're doing. Where can people find out more about uh, the great Adam Creek? Well, there is the book, The Responsibility Ethic, which is an audiobook uh, and is also a paperback. Uh, you can find more on YouTube as well. I've broken down a lot of the teachings and principles into YouTube videos if you're a, a video learning type of person. But we also maintain a website called Values Driven Achievement. Uh, so if you look at valuesdrivenachievement.com, uh, right now we're still working on web optimization. You know, so it's, I'm a, a leadership consultant, learning marketer, not learning marketing. I'm not a marketer who has all of a sudden rebranded as a leadership consultant. <laughs> so it's, uh, we're, we're updating the website. We've got an old website, creekspeak.com. And, uh, you can find a lot of old blogs there. And from, if you just want to reach out, I'm usually on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter, um, pumping out some pragmatic, practical philosophy, hopefully. <laughs> some reminders of obvious things you, you know, probably already know, but it's nice to hear them again. Uh, <clears throat> so that's, uh, that's where people can connect. Well, the world's a better place for you making um, the jump from the boat to land again and to help uh, those of us in leadership and non-leadership roles make sense of how they can bring their true and full selves uh, to whatever it is that they're doing in their lives and their work. So Creek Speaks, Adam Creek, thank you so much for this uh, and I look forward to our next one. Yeah, thank you very much, Dan.